You're listening to the Bible uncut and unfiltered. We believe the Bible doesn't need to be watered down or cleaned up to be understood. Our goal is to provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. I'm your host, Colin Connor. Now, on to the episode. We ended last week at the transition point between chapters 2 and 3. At the end of chapter 2, we have had two different creation narratives, both telling the same general story, just from slightly different perspectives. And it's really good. There's a lot of potential for humanity now to take the created order that God brought in chapters 1 and 2 and spread that all the way through the rest of the world. But here, as we transition to chapter 3, we start to hit a very somber note as we notice the introduction of this serpent character. Now, just like the serpent's deceptive character is shown in his interactions with the man and woman, he is a very difficult character to pin down. So today, we're going to get into some discussions on what exactly this serpent was, why he was there, and what he was trying to accomplish. And we're going to see there are several different possible ways that you can view chapter 3. There's even a couple of translation issues that are going to factor into the discussion, and how you choose to translate those sections can actually have a big impact on the meaning of the story moving forward. So, without further ado... Chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Alright, let's pause here because there is a lot to discuss just in these first few verses. And let's begin with the serpent. When you hear the word serpent, chances are you're thinking of some form of snake. And I think that's what a lot of people imagine when they hear this story. But I believe there is more to this creature than just that. The Hebrew word in this story is nakash. And I like to use that term when referring to the serpent, because serpent just has too much baggage with it. There's too much that your mind brings into the story when you hear the word serpent or snake. Nakash, since it's not an English word, isn't as familiar to us, and so you kind of get the idea that this might be a different kind of creature than I'm used to. So if you hear me say Nakash through this, that's why, just because I think it helps us to view this story in light of its ancient context instead of our modern one. Now, there are at least four main views on what this Nakash here could be. The first one is that this was a normal snake, and that snakes used to be able to walk and speak. And this story tells you why snakes don't walk or speak now. And that could make sense for the walking part, but I think there's a big problem that arises when you have to ask why were snakes only, of all the animals in the animal kingdom, granted the ability to speak? Or some people might even suggest that a lot of animals, or even all animals, used to be able to speak before the fall, and the snake's sin or rebellion caused all animals to lose the ability of speech. The problem is, that's not really implied by the text at all. And so I find this perspective challenging to accept, especially in light of some of the other options. Now, option two is that the serpent was a relatively normal snake, but that it was possessed by the devil. So in other words, the devil, Satan, entered into a relatively normal snake and used the physical form to tempt Adam and Eve. In this case, a lot of people would say snakes never could speak. It was only the possession through the devil that allowed it to speak. But perhaps snakes could walk at that point. However, there is a major problem with this view. And it's that the devil isn't present in this story at all. 
You heard that right, folks. The devil is not present in this story at all. You can read this chapter front to back and back to front, and you will not find any mention of Satan or the devil. It is only much later tradition that adds the devil into the story or reads him back into the story. In fact, if you were to talk to the average Jewish person about this story and mention where the devil tempts Adam and Eve, they would probably look at you like you're crazy, because that's just not a part of how they view this story. And I tend to think that they're right. There is no indication in this text or anywhere else in the entirety of the Tanakh, the entirety of the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, that places the devil in the garden with Adam and Eve, or suggests that he possessed the serpent. Now, that being said, it is a very popular view to read the devil into the garden. Something does not become that popular without at least a little bit of a reason. So let's talk about why we've gotten to the point where we almost unanimously read the devil into a story where he actually isn't named. I think it comes mainly from two verses in Revelation, where a dragon has been used throughout the book to represent ultimate evil. The dragon is pictured as warring with God and Jesus, and Revelation 12.9 and 22.2 call it the dragon, that old serpent, called the devil, and the Satan. So people look at this verse and assume that the devil was the serpent in the garden. They see a list of titles, a list of names, a list of descriptors here, and they say, well, since they're all put together, it must be saying that the devil, Satan, is the serpent from the garden. And that is one way to view it. But the verse does not explicitly say that. Furthermore, that connection does not appear anywhere else in the entire Bible outside of these two verses in the same book. So whenever you have something that is only backed up by a couple of verses in one book of the Bible, you have to read it in light of the rest of the Bible and let the majority of the text inform how we're viewing those couple of verses. So we want to be careful not to make a dogmatic statement based on something that only shows up a time or two here in Scripture. How we view these verses has to be considered in light of how we interpret the rest of the story. And on closer review... Neither of these two verses, Revelation 12.9 or 20 verse 2, specifically say that the devil was the serpent from the garden. The serpent in those two verses is called old. Now that can mean ancient or original, but it can also just mean old. Think of someone who is always known for lying to cover his own butt. And maybe a friend says they talked with that person the other day, so you say, well, what did that old snake say this time? You're using the term as a pejorative to insult them. Maybe the person is only 30 years old, but we all know what you mean by calling him an old snake, and some suggest that could be closer to what John is doing here. Another perspective, and this is kind of where I land on this, is that John would be associating the dragon with the serpent in terms of character rather than actual being. And so this usage parallels how we might use the name Jezebel to describe someone with a similar negative disposition. So if you call a really cantankerous woman a Jezebel, you're not implying that she's the reincarnation of an ancient Israelite queen. You're saying that she has the same personality or character qualities as that person. So in this case, John would not be saying that the dragon of Revelation actually was the same supernatural being behind every bad thing since the garden. Rather, he would just be saying that this creature is in the vein of the serpent, if you will. It shares similar character traits and personality. You may have noticed when I mentioned the titles for this creature in Revelation 12 and 20 that I put the before Satan. The dragon, that old serpent, called the devil, and the Satan. 
Now, this is a topic that deserves its own podcast episode, if not really its own series, so I will only touch on it right here. But Satan is not a proper name. We tend to say Satan as if it is the name of the devil, but it's not. Satan is actually a title. So whenever you see it in scripture, it's really the Satan, or in Hebrew it would be Hasatan. So sometimes I might even say Hasatan, just to remind us that this is a Hebrew word that means something different than what we tend to picture with the guy in the red tights and who holds a pitchfork and has a tail. It's similar to how Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title. So it's technically Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Satan is the same way, it's not his name, it's a title that means the adversary or the enemy. So we do not have a name for the devil or the Satan in scripture, not even before the fall. I know a lot of people tend to think based on popular culture and a lot of Bible translations that there was a being named Lucifer who fell from grace in heaven and over time became the devil or the Satan. But that's also not in scripture, <laughs> at least not quite the way that you've heard the story. Lucifer is also not a proper name. It is a title. And in fact, it's not even a Hebrew or Greek word. It's from Latin that got moved over into English. So Lucifer is a title that means light bearer. It is not most likely a name. So we don't actually have a name for the devil or the Satan or the Lucifer. Those are all just different titles. And in some cases, I think an argument can be made that they refer to different beings as well. We tend to lump all of this together into one, and that's the result of a couple thousand years now of traditions that have built on the text. But especially in the Tanakh, there really isn't a unified portrait of a big bad guy who's to blame for all of the evils of the world. In fact, when the Satan specifically appears in Bible stories, he is not the devil like we tend to think of him. It's a very two-dimensional character who's basically like a prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of heaven. In fact, even the angel of the Lord is himself referred to as a Satan in a passage or two. A great example of this is with Balaam and his donkey in Numbers 22. That's a really fun, really weird portion of scripture that we probably should address a different day. But in that story, you have a really weird guy who goes by the name of Balaam, and he is offered a job by a king in the area who wants him to curse the Israelites. Balaam some way has connection with Yahweh and is able to hear from him overnight. Yahweh specifically says, don't do this. Balaam says, I'm going to do it. So he goes out anyway and is on the road to curse the Israelites, and his donkey is able to see an angel of the Lord standing in the way to prevent them from going any further. Now, Balaam does not see this, and he ends up getting into some very interesting situations, including having an all-out argument with the donkey over this unseen angel. But the reason that this is important for today is, in verse 22, the angel of the Lord is specifically called the Satan, Hasatan. A lot of translations will say it stood in the way as an adversary or as an opponent to Balaam, but it's that word, Ha Satan. So all of that to say that the devil, the Satan, is a very complicated character in the Old Testament and probably not even a singular character. And if we're being honest with the text, we just have to admit that there's not as much clear connection between all of these different characters as tradition has led us to believe. I think another thing that has led to some of the confusion, specifically for our topic today, are the passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And those two are often linked to the fall of Satan. 
despite there being two very separate prophetic visions concerning very different individuals. The mention of Lucifer in Isaiah 14 doesn't necessarily pertain to the devil as we commonly understand him. As we already addressed, Lucifer was not the name of Satan before the fall. It's a title for a specific spiritual being. So that's its own thing that definitely needs to get addressed at a different time, but I'm just throwing that out there to show you a little bit of the breadcrumb trail of why we go from no clear mention of the devil in Genesis 3 to basically everyone thinking that the devil was there in the garden. I realize this is a very brief overview for a very complex topic, so I do plan to delve deeper into the Satan and the devil and spiritual realm stuff in future podcast episodes. But for now, I just wanted to provide you with a little bit of a glimpse of alternative interpretations and to assure you that I am aware of the passages that could be read to place the devil in the garden, but I think there are more nuanced ways to understand them. So I'm just giving this little intro to the idea today so that as we go through Genesis 3 here, you can read it without reading the devil into the story. I realize that's a really hard thing to do when that's all that we're usually familiar with, but I would encourage you as much as possible as we're going through this, try to consider the Nakash as its own type of being, something that does not have anything to do with the devil. That rabbit hole aside, let's consider a third perspective on what the Nakash could actually be here. The first one was that it was just a normal snake, and for some reason back then, snakes were very different than they are today. Second option is that it was possessed... The third option is that the serpent was actually a mythological creature in a mythological story. Snakes never have had the ability to walk or talk. And this story is not necessarily video camera footage of actual people talking with an animal and falling from their privileged status. Rather, it's a later symbolic story crafted to explain why the world is the way that it is today. This view makes the account here something like the Tale of Pandora's Box, there never was a girl named Pandora who opened a magical box. But there are problems in the world, and we each reach points in our lives where we have a choice between right and wrong, like Pandora did. So, from this view, with this particular story, there never was an actual Adam and Eve, there never was an actual serpent. Adam and Eve represent you and me, and the choices that we make every day to either give in to temptation or to choose God's way. And the serpent is representative of that choice that we get to make. I can imagine that this way of looking at the story is inviting or even exciting to some of you. It helps you to appreciate the text better. But then I can also imagine that there are several listening for whom thinking of the story that way is actually really concerning and sounds like you're not taking the Bible seriously. So let me assure you that this way of viewing the story, though it may not be something that all of you have heard before, is definitely not heresy. Understanding the story as a metaphorical representation of the choice between good and evil can provide valuable insights. I'm not necessarily saying this is the correct view to take, but I'm putting it out there as a possible one, and one that does have meaning for a lot of people. See, the Bible drew on the culture and the popular genres of literature of its time, so pretty much every people group throughout history has had a system of mythologies about larger-than-life figures that represent the mundane experiences that we have every day. It's possible to believe that the Bible did something similar and still treat the text as meaningful and authoritative. There's a lot of wisdom and truth that can be found in stories that aren't necessarily factual, security camera footage recountings of historical events. Think about the story of George Washington and the cherry tree, or the tortoise and the hare, or Narcissus and his reflection. None of those stories likely ever happened, but they're still meaningful. 
they still teach truth. And for some people, that's the best way to understand this kind of story in the Bible. This view answers the problem with talking snakes, but I realize it is still an uncomfortable one for a lot of people who are used to viewing the Bible as basically like historical security camera footage. That if you could go back in time, what's recorded in the Bible is exactly what happened. And that is a possible way of viewing it. But I just wanted to throw out here that there are other ways that good Christians who believe the Bible and trust God view the text. And so this is one of them. Now, all that being said, I actually take a fourth view that maintains that the serpent was a supernatural being, distinct from an ordinary snake. There were snakes in the garden. They have never been able to walk or talk. The Nakash was a unique creature. It was a spiritual being, something kind of like an angel. And like an angel, it could take physical form when it desired. And the form that it chose was something that was serpentine. Not quite like a snake like we think of, actually more like a dragon. You can kind of think of like Mushu from Mulan, just minus the snark of Eddie Murphy. It would have been basically a small dragon. Now, while a lot of people aren't as familiar with this view, it is actually a very old way of viewing the text, and it's been growing in popularity thanks to the work of a number of scholars like Michael Heiser, and the Bible Project has done some work on this as well. So in this view, the Nakash is not a snake. It is not a possessed snake. There were snakes at that time, but the Nakash was its own special, possibly even one-of-a-kind type of supernatural being that just had a very serpentine kind of dragon-esque form. And this actually fits with a lot of other cultures of that time that had stories with dragon chaos creatures. We talked about that a little bit with the sea serpent. So since we already have the Bible talking about a sea serpent dragon-like creature for the water, it kind of makes sense that you would have a similar sort of creature on land. Now let's talk about that word that's used to describe it. A lot of translations will have something along the lines of cunning or crafty. The Hebrew word is arum, and it is not a negative description. I think a lot of times, because we're expecting this creature to be the devil, we're reading it as if he's just slinking along and ready to pounce on the humans and cause all kinds of trouble. But as far as we are just a few words into this verse, there is no indication that this Nakash is a bad creature of any kind. A room is not a negative description. It's a neutral term, and it's actually used positively in parts of Proverbs. Being a room does not mean that you're being sneaky. It really means that you have street smarts. Basically, you're not the type of person who's going to fall for a crypto scam. You know, you're going to know your way around, have a little bit of wisdom and worldly wiseness to you. So this serpent is being called more arum, more worldly wise, more street smart than any other creature that Yahweh God has made. Interestingly enough, though, that word arum, it is the same word used for naked in the preceding verse. So there's a little bit of a contrast going on between the nakedness of the humans and the street smarts of this serpent. And I think we're given a little bit of a clue here that this is more than just your garden variety snake. This isn't just an average creature, because he's being described as more street smart than any animal, any life which God had made. So you're already getting tipped off to the idea that this isn't a normal snake. But as soon as he's introduced, he's already trying to plant seeds of doubt in the mind of the woman. And you have to ask, why did he care? Like, what, what's the big deal? Why did he go after the woman in the first place? And why didn't he go after the man? Why did he pick her? Well, several theories exist. Some people would argue that the serpent targeted the woman due to his perceived notion that she was mentally weaker and easier to deceive. 
And a lot of times you'll get preachers trying to say that if he had gone after the man, none of this ever would have happened. He just went after the woman because he knew that she was the weak link in the chain. But, and I hate to say this, I really think that's just the preacher's misogyny seeping through. There is no indication in the text that the woman was anything less than the man, any less intelligent. If anything, remember from chapter 2, they were one individual that was split in two, so there is no reason to think that she was any less intelligent or any easier to fool than the man was. I think that's really just our cultural misogyny seeping through and coloring our interpretation of the story. There is no reason in the text to think that the woman was weaker in any way to the man. A second option that some people present is based on the observation of how the woman's words differ from God's. Some would speculate that the Nakash knew she was misinformed about the tree and intentionally approached her. As we continue reading through this, we're going to see that she misquotes what God said. God said, you cannot eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge or discerning of good and not good. But she says that God's command was not to eat of that tree, nor to touch it. So somehow she was misinformed, and exactly how that happened, we don't know. I will address some theories on why that could be when we get there, but some people would look at the way that she responded and say that the serpent maybe knew that and was trying to pinpoint her because she didn't have correct information about the tree. And it is possible, but that does not really align with the view that I hold on this, and I will explain that a little bit further as we continue moving along. Third option And this one is kind of amusing in its simplicity, but some people think that the serpent would have targeted whichever one of them happened upon him first. If it was the man, serpent would have gone after him. It just so happened that the woman went on her walk before him and ended up at the tree first. Some even suggest that both the man and the woman were actually present during this entire encounter. And that's a perspective that I will address in a few minutes here, because the Bible is not actually clear on where the man was during this whole story. Personally, I think that the Nakash specifically targeted the woman, and I think he did it in order to hit the human where it hurt. See, there is a common practice in a lot of the world throughout history where the firstborn in a family is considered to be the next up-and-coming leader of the family. Specifically, the first male child is considered to be the next leader of the family for no virtue or reason other than just they were the first. They're going to take over the family business. They're going to take over the spiritual and economic leadership of the family. They're going to be the patriarch that leads the family forward. And that's really just been assumed throughout most cultures of history that there is something special about the firstborn or specifically the firstborn son, because it's usually in a male-dominated culture, where that firstborn child is seen as maybe even blessed by God or entitled to extra blessing more than the rest of the children would be. Now, we don't have that view as much in modern America, but you still see it a little bit, especially if there's like a family business, and a lot of times the parents might think that the oldest child is going to take over the family business one day or be there to take care of them when they get older. So it does kind of translate a little bit, just not to the extent of which it would in a lot of other cultures throughout history, and especially ancient Near Eastern ones. But what's unique about the Bible is, even though it exists in a culture that assumes that kind of thing, it doesn't follow that pattern. In fact, God seems to go specifically out of his way to pick literally anyone other than the firstborn in a family to bless. A lot of times he actually goes for the youngest. You can think of God's picking David to be king over all of his older brothers. You can think of God working through Abel instead of Cain, Jacob instead of Esau, Isaac instead of Ishmael. We can just go story after story. Moses, (laughs) yeah, was younger than his brother Aaron. 
So the Bible is just full of stories where God picks the younger to bless and to work through. And most of those stories include something of the older siblings fighting to get their blessing back. And so there are some people who look at this story that we have here in Genesis 3 and see it as the first occurrence of God picking a latecomer to the story to bless instead of the firstborn, and then the firstborn being jealous over that and trying to get it back. Now, I should specify here, firstborn does not have to be an adjective specifically meaning born first. It's more of a noun when it's in the Bible, something that is basically a title of preeminence, saying that this is the firstborn in the family. This is the one who is going to take things over. So in this case, basically everything in creation was created before humanity, especially in the chapter one account. Humans are the latecomers to the story. Animals are already created before that, and spiritual beings are as well. But God chooses the latecomer the ones who aren't created first, or quote-unquote firstborn, if you will, to rule his creation. He picks the humans, the last ones created. And then when the human comes on the scene, he has the opportunity to pick from any of those previously created things to partner with him in ruling over the earth. But he passes over all of them in favor of the latecomer in his story, which was the woman. So in this point of view, the Nakash, being some sort of spiritual being, was jealous that he was passed over to rule the earth by something that came after him, a second-born creature, if you will. And when the human passed over all of the animals, and I suppose you could even say over all the spiritual beings, to partner with him as a ruler over God's earth, he becomes jealous and devises a plan to sabotage the relationship that these two humans now have. It's really kind of like a soap opera where you have a guy choose one girl to be his girlfriend and there's another girl who's really jealous of that so she tries to ruin their relationship. Or you could even consider it like a superhero movie where the villain doesn't go after the hero directly but goes after their loved ones instead. Uh, it doesn't imply that the targeted individual is inherently inferior to the hero. Rather, it serves as a means for the villain to torment and disrupt the hero's life. I think that's similar to the dynamic that we have at play here. The Nakash was jealous that God chose the humans to rule over the earth, and that the human chose another human to rule with him, so he goes after the one who replaced him in order to bring the humans down to his level. Now, here's where it starts to get a little complicated. There are a couple different ways that we can interpret the Nakash's opening statement. The common view is that he is haggling with the woman purposefully appearing uninformed in order to lure her in. So this is going to be where you have most translations say something along the lines of, did God really say you can't eat of all of the trees of the garden? However, others would suggest that he's presenting a false statement, which the woman then interrupts. So from this position, his statement would read something along the lines of, though God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, and he's about to finish it, and the woman cuts him off right there and says, well, from the fruit of the garden's trees, we can eat, just not this particular one. At the end of the day, it doesn't make a huge difference whether the Nakash was asking a question of, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? Or if he was making a statement of, since God said you can't eat from the trees, and then is corrected. That doesn't really make a huge difference, but I do find it amusing that a creature whose entire character is built around being deceptive and hard to pin down, well, his very first statement is really hard to pin down and go, well, what exactly did he mean there? There's a lot of ambiguity. There's a couple of different ways that you can read it. And I think that's actually intentionally written in there just to keep us guessing about what he's actually saying and what he really means. 
There are even some who would read his question or statement as talking about any of the trees of the garden. So rather than being, did God say you can't eat from all of the trees? It would be, did God say that you can't eat from any of the trees? Like he was really trying to rub it in and make God seem stingy toward them. But whichever position you choose to take on his words, the woman's answer doesn't really make things any simpler. In fact, we just run into more complications. Because she says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, Don't eat of it, don't touch it, lest you die. The debate usually focuses on what she added to God's statement, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to draw your attention to an odd detail that isn't usually mentioned, and it's about the location of the trees. Going all the way back to Genesis 2.9, only the tree of life is specifically said to be in the middle of the garden. If we look at that verse really quickly, it reads, Out of the ground Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it is only specifically the tree of life that is said to be in the middle of the garden. Now, I believe it's implying that the tree of discerning good and not good was also near it, in the center, but it is never specifically said to be. And so here, the woman says that they can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and the only tree that we have specifically been told is in the middle of the garden is the tree of life. So that has led some to go so far as to suggest that the woman was actually eating from the tree of life rather than from the tree of discerning good and not good. Now, I don't think that view holds up. It gets really complicated. But it is strange to me how the description of being in the middle of the garden is now switched to the other tree. It's also interesting that the woman removes the infinitive absolute from God's statement. When God gave the warning about the tree to the humans, we mentioned that there's something in Hebrew called an infinitive absolute. That's where you have basically the same root word put side by side as an intensive. So when God says, you will surely die, it's very literally, dying you will die. Or some have even said, doomed to die. Now the serpent, the Nakash, exactly negates what God said. Dying you will not die. But the woman removes the emphasis there and just says that they would die if they ate from the tree. Not that they would surely die, or dying you will die. So now, not only are the Nakash's words hard to pin down, he has the woman talking in very ambiguous ways as well. And that really carries over into why she adds to God's command in the first place. God only said, don't eat from the tree of discerning good and not good. But here she says that they're not supposed to eat from it, and they're not supposed to touch it. So we have to ask, where did this idea of not touching the tree come from? Some people suggest from this that God gave a second set of unrecorded instructions later on after chapter 2. So we have in chapter 2 God saying, don't eat from the tree, and sometime between chapters 2 and 3 he says, oh yeah, you also probably shouldn't touch the tree. That's possible, but it's an argument from silence. We can't prove that one way or the other, and I don't think it really fits with the story. I think we're actually supposed to pay attention to the difference between the two statements and try to ask why they are different. So some others would suggest that perhaps the man miscommunicated the command to her. He was supposed to say, don't eat from the tree, but for some reason he said, don't eat from the tree and don't touch it. His motivation is different depending on who's talking there. Some people think that it was accidental, he just misspoke. Others suggest he did it purposefully because he didn't trust her to get it right on her own. That second option is, in my opinion, unnecessarily derogatory. It's, again, our cultural misogyny seeping in. 
While I don't think there are a lot of people listening to this who would say that men are inherently smarter than women, it kind of is just that cultural carryover. Like, we even have it with the stereotype of don't send a woman to get the oil changed in a car because then she's going to be fooled by the mechanic and rack up a huge bill there. That's just not helpful. And maybe the reason that a lot of women aren't as familiar around a car is because guys didn't teach them that, because it was considered to be a guy thing. Send a guy to do something that is usually a girl thing, and he'll be fumbling around just as much. Maybe the problem isn't with the gender of the person, but with the way that we have stereotyped what role belongs to which person. So if you ever hear someone trying to say that Adam specifically and purposefully added to the command for Eve because he thought that she wasn't trustworthy, that's probably not the best person to be getting your Bible interpretation from. Now, for those who say that Adam miscommunicated accidentally, I suppose it is possible, but we have to remember that this isn't God giving dozens or several hundred commands to these two people. He literally had one command that he gave them, was don't eat from this specific tree, and go out and spread the order of the garden to the rest of the world. That's really not a lot to get across. So even though we don't know exactly how much time takes place between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, I mean, even if it was only a couple hours, that's plenty of time for the man to say, hey, that specific tree over there, that's the one thing we're not supposed to eat from. That's all he had to say. So I really don't think that it makes sense to say that he didn't communicate it to her or didn't communicate it to her properly. When you really only have one rule, it only makes sense that he would have actually said that in its entirety. It, it wasn't that much to ask. So then we're left with the idea that Eve herself misrepresented God's words. And you have to ask, was this accidental or was it purposeful? If it was accidental, did she just forget the exact wording? When you finish this podcast episode, and if you go to tell someone else about it, you're not going to be able to repeat word for word what I said. No matter how much you may like the episode or been intrigued by what we talked about, you're not going to be able to repeat it word for word. So maybe she just accidentally misquoted it. Suppose that's possible, but again, it was really only one command and a pretty basic one at that, so I have a little bit of trouble accepting that. So then you're kind of left with the option that Eve purposefully added to God's words. And again, motive is not specified in the text, so anything that we're doing here is speculation. But I do think that the text is inviting us to consider that she purposefully added to God's command because she thought, well, if we're not supposed to eat it, if we don't touch it, we'll never eat it. So let's just say the line is at, don't touch it. I tend to think that the woman heard the exact same command that the man did, don't eat from the tree. But she chose to apply that her own way. And in her error, I see a warning for all of us. We have to be careful, so careful, not to equate our own personal understanding of God's words with what he actually said. That is a sure way to get in a lot of trouble. But I see this happening all the time. For example, consider how all throughout the Bible there are warnings against drunkenness. Verse after verse of, you don't want to get drunk. Bad things happen when you get drunk. Yet we've built up an entire culture that says God doesn't want you to drink at all. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible warns against drunkenness. It doesn't prohibit drinking. But because some well-intentioned people have seen the damage that alcohol can do, they read that into the Bible. They're looking for prohibition against drinking instead of warning against drunkenness. And even though that is well-intentioned, it is the exact same mistake. 
that the woman made in the garden. Now, whenever I teach this passage, I always add in that that makes the woman the first fundamentalist. And sure enough, it always upsets somebody. But I grew up in Christian fundamentalist culture, and I have to say, it's pretty accurate. A lot of times what we do is we see where God draws a line, and we are afraid of people crossing over that line because we see God's way as the best way, and we don't want other people to make mistakes. So we draw the line further back than where God did, thinking that if we put the line further back than God did, we'll never have to worry about crossing God's line. But here's the thing. God is God, and you aren't him. When you try to take a standard that God has given and move it to a different spot, you are in effect saying that you know better than God because what he allowed was too close to the line for you, so you adapt what he said. That's not a great place to be. When I was growing up, my family would sometimes go camping in Maryland at a particular state park where you could go on a hiking trail and you get to a lighthouse, and this lighthouse is overlooking the Chesapeake Bay. Now, the lighthouse itself is a good ways away from the edge of the cliff that it's on. But for the longest time, there really wasn't anything there at the edge of the cliff. Like, you could keep walking to get a better view of the bay, and there was no fence. Now, the last time I was there, they had put up a fence. But when I say a fence, it was just like basically plastic chicken wire, so it wasn't going to do much. But for whatever reason, the people who are the authorities for that area said, let's put the fence here and let's say it was five feet from the edge. They determined that this was a safe enough distance of five feet to keep you from falling over the edge. Now, if you personally go there and you say, I don't like heights, I don't like being there on the edge, I'm going to stay 50 feet back. Well, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes in if you were to say that your line of 50 feet is where the fence should have been placed or even where the fence was placed. So you tell someone else, you're supposed to stay 50 feet back from the ledge. Well, that's not where the line was drawn. The authorities there said, five feet is fine. So you've got a 45-foot gray area in there, where even though that's not okay for you, it might be okay for someone else. They might not have a problem with it, and they might actually enjoy getting a little bit closer of a view of the bay, and it would still be safe for them. This is what we do all of the time with standards and the Bible. The Bible says one thing, and we decide, you know what, I think that's a little too close. So we put the line further back. The Bible says that we should have encouraging speech, and so we've taken that to mean don't say four-letter words. And then we've taken that to be, oh, well, you know what, some words are just too close. Heck is a little too close to hell. Darn is a little too close to damn. Or with outfits. The Bible says that you should dress modestly, and we have taken that and said that you have to wear an outfit that comes to this point on the knee or this point on the neckline. And if that's your personal standard to have an outfit that goes here on your knee or there on your neck or to not use certain words, that's totally fine. But if you then say this is what God wants, that's crossing a line and actually making your standard God's standard. So you're putting yourself in the place of God. You are committing the same sin that the woman did here. This happens a lot, especially when we're teaching our kids. We'll say that God drew the line at X point when really he drew the line at Y point. And so the problem comes when these kids are proverbially going up to the lighthouse and trying to look over the edge of the cliff, and you stop them at 50 feet and say that this is where God drew the line on the cliff. You're supposed to stop at 50 feet. Well, eventually, the kids get curious, and they get old enough, and they cross over that 50-foot line. 
And when they do, and they see the 45 feet there where they're all good to go, they're safe and there's no problem, they completely lose respect for what you said. And because you put it as God's standard, they lose respect for what God said. They realize that I crossed over that line and nothing bad happened. So that must have all just been fake. And then they're liable to step over the actual line at five feet because you said the line was at 50 and nothing happened when they crossed over it. That is a big reason why Christianity has lost a lot of the younger generation. Not because they're all godless and couldn't give a lick about religion, and not because you didn't use enough rock music and flashy lights, but because you tried to play God in their lives. And it may have been well-intentioned, it may have just been because you didn't want them to fall into sin, but it is never the right way to go about that by adding to what God said and claiming that's actually what he wanted. And again, I want to make clear, if you have a personal standard that is different than what the Bible said, that's okay. If you say, I only want to listen to this kind of music, or I only want to wear these kinds of outfits, or watch these kinds of movies, or say these words, what have you, that's fine. There's no problem with that. But that is your personal standard. Be very careful not to present it as the word of God for anyone else. It is interesting to me, though, that the refrain of don't touch becomes the story of much of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, even though it was initially absent here in the creation story. See, love of God and others might prevent you from stepping over certain lines, but a rigid, fundamental adherence to a singular point of view leads a person to say, don't go anywhere near the line for fear of stepping over it accidentally. A relationship built on love and grace may say, don't eat, but it is a culture of mistrust and fear that says, don't touch. And interestingly enough, when the woman adds in this part about not touching the tree, she uses a rather forceful word for striking something. It's actually the word used in the Exodus story of striking the doorposts with the blood. I'm not sure if there's any great significance to that. Maybe it's a little bit of a hyperlink between the story at the start of the Exodus narrative and the story here at the start of Genesis. Uh, but either way, it does seem like a little bit of an odd word choice to me. As we get into verse 4, we see that the Nakash introduces back in the infinitive absolute that the woman took out of the conversation. He says to her, you will not surely die. You will not die to die, it would literally read. You could almost read it as saying, you would die not to die. I don't think that holds up grammatically in the context, but it does lead one to consider the lengths that humanity goes to in order not to face the inevitabilities of life. The Nakash continues, Because God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. Now, allow me to pose a controversial question. What if the Nakash was telling the truth here? What he said came true. By eating from this tree, they did gain the power of a god. They could now determine good and evil on their own. See, the problem wasn't that the Nakash was lying. It's that he was selling them something that they didn't need and couldn't use. You don't need to be like a god when you're already the likeness of a god. I believe there are some translations that have capital G God here, and that is possible. But in Hebrew, the word that is often translated God is Elohim, and it's actually a plural word, and that's a whole other debate in and of itself. But I think there's a solid case for translating this, you will become like gods. Because God is not a name. Now, we often use that word as if it's a name. What's the name of God? Well, God. But in the Bible, the God that we worship, his name is Yahweh. 
And the word god is really a class of being. It is a descriptive term to speak of a type of being that is not physical, something that exists on a spiritual realm apart from ours. So in the Tanakh, you have beings other than just Yahweh referred to as gods. Other spiritual beings are called Elohim. In fact, even in the story in uh, 1 Samuel, when Saul goes to the witch at Endor and says, hey, I'm not hearing anything from God, so would you do me a favor and bring up the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel so I can have a chat with him? Well, when the spirit of Samuel comes up from the grave, it is called an Elohim. So you have all of these different spirit beings, basically anything that doesn't naturally exist on the physical realm is called Elohim, a god. That is not to suggest that all Elohim have exactly the same power or authority. Rather, it's just referring to the class of being as a whole. So just like we can say there are spiritual beings of differing power and authority, God is a spiritual being, angels are a spiritual being, demons are spiritual beings, but they're not all the same thing. Well, it's the same thing with the word gods. Gods can refer to all of those beings since they are non-physical in nature. So here in this verse, I think the Nakash was an Elohim, a spiritual being of some sort. And he was saying that by eating of this tree, the humans could also become spiritual beings. They could become Elohim like he was. See, he wanted to be like them, and he played off of their wanting to be like him. One of the most important and yet difficult truths to learn in life is that the people you are most jealous of are usually jealous of you. We often grasp for what other people have only to find that they're no happier than we are, and they're actually subject to the same misconceptions that we are. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. The New American Commentary has some really interesting notes sometimes, and they bring out something here that parallels this story with the Mesopotamian Adapa myth, A-D-A-P-A. And in that tale, it was possible for the hero to obtain the wisdom of the gods granted by the god Ea, but to be denied divine immortality. So in other words, the human mortal would obtain one part of divinity without actually becoming divine. He would get divine knowledge without actually becoming a god. And that's basically what we have going on here in this story. So our Genesis story seems to be playing on a common trope of that time. Recall as well, just a reminder here, that the tree was not offering the humans knowledge that they did not have before. That's often how it's read, thanks to the translation choice of the knowledge of good and evil. But the tree represented a choice of discerning what is right and not right. So in other words, the tree was just a representation of the authority that humans were taking for themselves outside of God. This was not their learning any new information. It was their striking out on their own as rulers of the earth outside of God's authority and blessing. And up until this point, it has been God who is declaring what is good in this story. All throughout chapter 1, we had him saying, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. But here, when the woman reaches out, it's because she sees that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. So up until now... God has been declaring what's good, but here this is the first time that the human looks at what they consider to be good on their own terms. And that is the truest definition of sin. When I define good and evil based on what seems best to me in the moment, regardless of how it affects you, everything about this passage is an inversion of God's ideal. Even how the woman perceives the tree is the reverse of how God did. In Genesis 2.9, the trees are first called good to the eyes and then good for food. And I brought in an observation from some Jewish commentators about what that could mean. 
But here, the woman sees that the tree is good for food, and then good to the eyes. So I don't think we're supposed to make too much out of that, but I think it's significant because it is the exact opposite, the exact inversion of how God described it. And that being said, there is some debate about how exactly to translate this phrase here in verse 6. It doesn't transfer well over into English. The tree is literally called lust to the eyes and lovely to look at. You could also say it is a tree desirable to succeed. So if I can spiritualize for a moment, it's just begging you to consider what trees of success are you grasping for in your life? In other words, whose approval are you craving? Your mom, your dad, in-laws, kids, boss, pastor? You will never be who you are supposed to be if you are grasping for success on their terms. You have to go solely off the way of Yahweh, that simply by virtue of being his creation, you are loved and worthy and enough in him. You don't need anyone else's way of life. You are enough as you are. See, the story of Adam and Eve is really the story of all of us. Simply by nature of being human, we have been given everything we need. Yet we grasp and we claw at the few things that are outside of our control that can't possibly make us any happier than we already have the ability to be. I think the main message we're supposed to get from this garden story is that in following Yahweh's way and living in his blessing, you are free to give up the pursuit of meaning. You're free to just step back and be. Whatever achievement or validation you're looking for outside of yourself is rendered redundant by the gift of God, and even more so by the gift of his Son. See, while we so often choose to take from our own trees of discerning good and not good, Jesus set a new example for us, to give rather than take when faced with a tree of testing. And by following his example, we too can choose to give rather than to take, and to rest in our identity in God without feeling like we have to add to that or choose our own way. That is the message of the garden story, and it is a message that can still change the way that you live today. And with that, we will wrap up for this week. We have covered a lot of ground, and next week we'll be able to finish chapter 3. We have a lot to discuss there, too. It's going to be a really fun week. We're going to talk about the curse and why it's actually not as much of a curse as you might think that it is. We're also going to talk about specific aspects of it. We'll look specifically at the judgments on the serpent and the woman and the man, and how our theological bents can influence how we interpret those verses, and what that means for the way we read the rest of the Bible, and even how we live out our lives today, and plenty more. It will be a very fun discussion, as always. So, until then, stay curious, and keep asking questions about the uncut and unfiltered Bible. You've been listening to The Bible Uncut and Unfiltered. We hope we provide a healing place to discuss the questions you can't ask and the context you won't learn in church. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. You can also rate and review on your podcast app to help other people find it. If you'd like to donate to keep our work going, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash thebibleuncut, where you'll get exclusive access to bonus content. You can also check out our website, thebibleuncut.com, for recommended resources and more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.